we're bringing the appropriate people to the table and that we're not designing for them, we're designing with them. We tend to forget that those iconic buildings are born out of the ground, they're growing out of streetscapes, but that's where we live, that's where we experience. It's the passion that each of us has to make a difference in this vast battle against a world that's depleting its resources and that furniture is our alley. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. Tune in each month as I explore the projects, products, and inspirations driving New York City's innovative design community. Today is the final episode of season one of The Mic, and we're going to take a look back at some of our favorite moments. While New York City was in the midst of a crisis, NYC by Design created The Mic to examine and celebrate the resilient spirit of our city's design community. We had the opportunity to speak with innovative, creative people and hear their captivating design perspectives that inspire hope and wonder. Today, join us as we dive into some of the fascinating stories from season one of The Mic. Episode one, Illustrating Sound. We were pleased to have Brian Sherman and Mark Addison Smith as guests on the very first episode of The Mic. Let's look back at some of the most interesting moments during our conversation. Brian Sherman is a sonic designer creating iconic and enduring sonic identity systems for brands and entertainment in spaces like retail, theme parks, and transportation. During our conversation, Brian discussed the important and often overlooked role of sonic design in public spaces. How can sonic connect, inform, and move us in the future of public spaces? I was so interested in what you said in your pitch, and I want to know how it can happen. Sure. I mentioned a bunch of different um, ideas in the pitch, and another one that I would like to throw in there is, in addition to sonic design, is acoustic design, which I think has so much uh, influence in how we feel in a public space. So I started talking about ambiences, these long form, uh, kind of repeating at infinite, infinity type of pieces of audio that help us to set a tone, uh, to create an emotion, but also do things like obscure sounds that we don't want to hear. Um, this can be a challenging issue, and I'm, I'm tying this to acoustic design because we have public spaces that can be very cacophonous in their own right. And so sometimes adding in sound uh, is not the important thing to do as much as pulling out sound or using acoustic properties that we can to diminish the sound that's happening in a space. And actually, there's some interesting spaces like Grand Central, which I think is so interesting that being a giant enclosed bathtub type space, one of the most amazing properties that it has is a lot of diffusion. So that if you're in that space, even if there are tons of people in that space, it's one of those amazing places that doesn't ever really feel uh, overwhelming for office, at least not to me. And that if you're close to someone, you can have that kind of interaction and hear each other. But you also have this just amazing low level din that's just kind of uh, moving around. Have you ever been to that part of Grand Central where I believe it's an almost dome-shaped hallway where you can speak into this little cubby hole and somebody <laughs> all the way on the other side of the hallway can hear you? How does that happen? 
it's so cool that I think it's called the Whispering Dome or, or something like that. Yeah, the um, the property just again, sort of like that acoustic property of transmitting your sound across the dome of your ceiling over to someone else and really feeling like you're playing telephone is pretty incredible. There's a, a museum in San Francisco called the Exploratorium, which does something similar where outside there are two very distant seating uh, areas and they have a big uh, such like a satellite dome behind them and similarly can project your sound, you know, 30 feet away and you feel like you're next to the person that you're talking to. And I think um, given the, the current climate we're in, given pandemic times where we can't be that close, I think it's interesting to use these uh, acoustic technologies to make us feel uh, closer together. Our other guest was Mark Addison Smith, a typographic storyteller and the creator of You Look Like the Right Type, a series of illustrated snippets of overheard conversations that Mark has been producing daily since 2008. Since joining us for the pilot, Mark teamed up with NYC by Design to create custom illustrations for each episode of The Mic. You can find his playful interpretations of season one on nycbydesign.org and on NYC by Design's social channels. During our conversation, Mark shared how his growing text-based archive has influenced his design perspective. Mark, tell me, do your sketches change your perceptions of the conversations you've had and the people you've interacted with? Do you feel like you hear differently once you're drawing what somebody has said? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I, I have a set of drawings that I consider pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. The pre-pandemic drawings are really heard in the wild, right? And I don't go up and introduce myself or meet the person. I just kind of capture the 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 bit. I'll, I'll write it down. I'm, I'm a very analog eavesdropper. So, so I write it down. I go, you know, I go to a space, my studio, my home, and I draw and it gets posted on social media. But during the pandemic, I, you know, I lost that, that ability to get out and about and, and, uh, uh, listen closely to people in person. So, so I had to facilitate those conversations through, um, invitations for Zoom talks. Um, and, and those were with strangers, uh, strangers that I admired from afar, but I had not met otherwise. So, you know, during the pandemic, it was interesting because I felt like I was uh, drawing for an audience of one and that audience was everything to me. So it put a different spin of pressure on my delivery. Right. Um, but also because I was inviting conversations with strangers that I had admired from afar, that also put pressure on producing the work, right? So one thing that's interesting to me, and it's one of my guests or one guests, one of my, one, one of my, um, cause it did kind of feel like a talk show that I was having from my dining room, right? <laughs> During the pandemic, because every day I would have another, you know, fascinating person on zoom. But one time I was about to draw someone and they said to me, they were like, Oh, I, I really love the way you scratch through things. If you draw something and you make a mistake, you just scribble through it and you just, you just move on. And, um, you know, I, in, in context with your question, I think that relaxes me into the drawing and it takes the pressure off the preciousness of that speaker's words and my need to be 
to deliver something that's, you know, perfect, right? Because once I've made a mistake with the drawing and I don't do another drawing, I just scratch through it. It just kind of deflates everything. And it's like, okay, there's a blemish on the drawing and we're going to be fine, right? That's the, I will scratch through things, but everything I draw is, uh, is, is drawn with a hundred percent accuracy of how I hear it. So if you see something that's scratched through, I'm scratching through a mistake I made to, to correct the speaker. Episode two, Selling Dreams. In episode two of The Mic, I spoke with creative director Marissa Lowenstein and conceptual artist Neil Hamamoto about how challenging times can be harnessed to spark new ideas and drive a resurgence of creative solutions. During my conversation with Marissa, she shared how Vedic meditation taught her to transcend thoughts and reach her creative potential. I know that you've studied in India and you are yeah. now a certified Vedic meditation teacher and you seek to transcend thoughts and try to inhabit a place of infinite creativity, a place I am absolutely searching for, the place where all ideas come from. How do you reach this place as part of the design process? What are the steps that you can help maybe teach our listeners to um, really leverage our creative ability and our intuition? We start with meditation itself. The type of meditation that I teach is um, we sit quietly with a mantra that is taught by, uh, by your teacher. And then what I, what I do is I divide the process. I start with the person. I think that to design, to end up with a good product, you have to start from the beginning, who's doing it. So I start with meditation. That's for me, is like the core, like the golden nugget of the whole process. I start with the creator, with me. Like, so all the, all the changes and the benefits that meditation are going to bring to your brain and to your body are going to set you up for a great process. Then I teach techniques to be able to organize that process. So how during the process of creation can I be able to transcend thoughts and transcend activity and let go of control and prepare my body to sit and actually do the work. So that's my second part. And then the third part, which I also think that is really interesting, I, uh, it's about community, the community of uh, creators. I think that a great and really important part of the creation process is sharing. I don't think that you can have a great product if you only think about the end result. It has to, become, it has to start from the very beginning. Next up, I spoke with Neil Hamamoto to discuss the inspiration behind his organization's public art initiative formed during the pandemic. Neil, how did this idea pop into your head? Were you walking around the city, looking at all the wood, wondering where it was all going to go? Did somebody inspire you to start it? Tell us the origin story. As an artist myself, actually, oftentimes I almost have too many ideas for work that I want to make. And so a new practice that I'm trying to bring in into that creative process is taking some time to sort of decompress and, and focus on the ideas that exist. And then often just trying to pick the one that I literally see in, in front of my nose. Um, if something in my studio or something out in the environment 
alludes to an idea that I've had, I usually will sort of try to channel my creative energy on just going for that. Um, and, you know, quite literally in New York, our sky, our, our, you know, eyesight was, was boarded up. You know, there was nowhere, there was, there were, there was no selling dreams as, as Marisa alluded to with the storefronts all being boarded up. Um, we went from, you know, transparent window panes to very opaque and dense wood. Um, and it just sort of clicked. I'm an artist that generally likes to work in plywood. And so I was sort of connecting the visual cue with, I think, more business-minded side of me, which is that I have to normally pay for this material in very large amounts. And so why not try to combat that issue, you know, while also supporting other artists around me. Episode three, building an impact. Last winter, I spoke with two leading New York City architects, Andrea Steele and Michael Chen, to discuss how we can develop equitable urban spaces through the built environment. Michael Chen is the co-founder of Design Advocates, a nonprofit network of independent architecture and design firms that conducts research and provides pro bono design services to organizations, small businesses, and under-resourced communities. During our conversation, I asked Michael what he thinks about the essential role of designers in community building projects. It's clear to me that the designer's role in reopening and rebuilding our city um, has has really been shown to be so critical in the next phase of, of this pandemic. Do you think that this experience that we've all been going through might position designers as more integral parts of the planning process across the board? I hope that that's true. I think that that was always, you know, the public school example is a is one in particular. We we were aware when we started Design Advocates that there was an opportunity here to kind of make good on the advocacy part of our of our name, right? That it wasn't just about it wasn't just about making design for the sake of design, right? But that but that through our encounter and our our work with with communities that, that there was an opportunity to build a real constituency, you know, and, and I think that we sort of identified a problem and tried to somewhat rigorously give it some kind of definition at, at the beginning, right? That there was that there were these, um, you know, there was a sort of uniquely spatial aspect to, to to COVID, right? Because it concerns our ability to be together and with something that is so foundational to the to the interests of architects, and so. Um, you know, we had kind of defined that as a problem. We we knew that we had the expertise to be beneficial, and now through this this organization, we've we've built a fairly sizable constituency of of people who can sort of bear witness to the fact that design has had positive impact on their ability to do their own work, right? To to kind of do the important work that they are doing in in communities. And so I think that that I think that the proof is in the pudding in, in many. In, in many respects. And I think that this is a truth that all designers already knew about design, but we lacked a kind of the best packaging for it. So I do think that there are opportunities, you know, for designers to, to be more a part of the conversation, to have a seat at the table. I think that it's an incredibly important thing. It's an important role that, that designers need to play, both in the response to the pandemic and also for what comes after. 
Our second guest for this episode was Andrea Steele, the founding principal of Andrea Steele Architecture, a New York-based practice that believes the scale of architecture is not measured by its physical presence, but by its positive impact on people, resources, and sense of place. Let's hear a bit from Andrea on how she developed this design perspective. Andrea, I was really fascinated by the concept of scale of architecture not being just measured by its physical size, but by its positive impact on people, resources, and a sense of place. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you see that manifesting. I I think for us, and I really appreciate what Michael said about uh, architects as advocates, Um, we're always looking to be advocates for every project, even if that is a client under a very typical structure, meaning we seek very hard to reframe the questions, you know, instead of, instead of a site being defined by the property, think about where the impact, what's the scale of the impact, instead of thinking about, you know, who the client is solely as the person that's hired us to think about what is the need that often allows us to be advocates for those that aren't necessarily at the table with us, defining what the scope of the project is. It forces us to look outside the project brief itself to decide how we can utilize the resources at hand to increase access to those resources, potentially to create other resources. So, uh, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, for as architects, we are always looking to advocate and to align. I think that all too often the design process is misunderstood as a means to an end. You know, that most people think of architects as a necessity to translate design ideas into the built form. I think as architects, we have to be able to risk Uh, that maybe architecture isn't always the answer, that the design process is the true advocacy, the true resource. And at the end of that process, you know, building might not be the answer and that you have to be willing to identify what the real need is. And sometimes the real need is just connecting people to their own voices and connecting those voices to others that could bring the resources that are necessary. You know, it's a, if the design process is really used to its full potential, which is connecting people to people and people to resources, then I think more often the end result is much more than uh, the the actual one-to-one built form. Episode four, always learning. In our fourth episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Joanna Pena Bickley, head of research and design for Alexa devices at Amazon, and Angie Lee, partner and design director of interiors at FX Collaborative, to discuss how designers hold the power to solve real life problems and shape experiences that are spatially, emotionally, and tangibly inclusive. During our introductory conversation, Joanna shared some insight into her process in designing inclusive experiences. As a design technologist, how do you approach creating products and experiences for everyone in that democratized way? And what is the first step that you take in doing this? Sure. 
You know, what's really interesting is that my approach to this actually comes out of having grown up in a design studio. I'm a second generation designer. I gave birth to the third generation by total accident. We didn't tell them they had to be designers. But I grew up in an interior design and architecture studio that was owned and run by my mother. I don't use any different, any different methodology in approaching problem solving than she did. You know, I look at it and say when people would come in and they say, you know, here I'm here to create a commercial space or I'm here to create a home. Her approach to it was that the space was about making people work and live or produce something in a symbiotic way. As someone who sits, you know, in the space of design and very proud of it, my palette just happens to be just a little bit different. I use the same things. I'm very, very important with typography and color. Those are core to everything that I do. But at the same time, my palette, right? My palette might be data, but my tools are technology. And that's the only difference between it. So my approach is very much about really trying to first conduct research, understand the human problem, truly get down to not just looking at it in reports, third-party research, but getting down and understanding what the core customer problem that it is that we're trying to solve, and then the second part and answer to that question is ensuring that when we are conducting research, that we have representation of both gender and ethnic minorities on equal par to everything that we're doing. So whether I am creating a hearable, right, for the next generation Echo Buds to the next speaker, that what we are doing is that we are bringing the appropriate people to the table and that we're not designing for them, we're designing with them. When I spoke with Angie Lee, she opened up about her journey in learning to tell her own story and embrace her personal identity. You mentioned that storytelling is at the heart of what you do. What are the kinds of stories that you aspire to tell through design? Well, first, I should start by saying, you know, I'm discovering ways to share my own stories, actually. I rarely found space to share those throughout my career, but... I became pretty good at describing the world around me with an intense focus on what you would call normal and mainstream. The storytelling forums that I found myself in, like classrooms and boardrooms, were crowded with stories of normalcy and a kind of mythological and manic positivity that left very little oxygen for stories from you know, the land of the other, which is where I was ambiguously placed. And the reasons why it wasn't a ready option to share the stories that I had collected are harder to explain than you might imagine because they're tied to a certain level of discomfort for the people listening to them. Many of the folks who are being told these kind of less fun tales from people in the margins are committed to tenets of design that center those at the top of the power structure in our society. And decentering the idealized power broker is to be at risk of incivility, impoliteness, or even insubordination. So those tenets are like pebbles in my shoes, the tenets of Eurocentric, male-centric design that is recycled class after class, year after year in design school, and was taught to me as stylistic vanguards in the form of the Bauhaus, mid-century modern you know, anything, <laughs> Scandinavian, minimalism, etc. But I learned how to become fluent in the retelling of these stories of these pebbles in my shoes. It helped that I had an early jump on the Americanization of my Korean American identity. 
And, you know, through design, I aspire to manifest the stories of the people who occupy the spaces that I help to create. You know, I try to learn their full story, uh, much like Joanna, who they are at home on their commute and who they turn themselves into when they walk into the workplace. Without knowing that, I might be in danger of designing a treehouse for a fish or an aquarium for a bird. You know, it's, it's, it gets that weird sometimes. But I'm working on nowadays is my weakness in telling my own story. You know, I'm rehabilitating my memory of my ethnic heritage and the best parts of my native culture in a way that allows space for someone like me who is Korean American or some other hyphenation, but who doesn't actually fit into the common mold on either side of that hyphen. And I believe there's a great deal of power and urgency and learning to tell your own story. And that is one of the most difficult things you can challenge yourself with, I've come to believe. I think that conquering the fear of who you, who you were, who you are, who, who we are, will let us connect and solve and take action and ultimately design a more lasting and profoundly respectful future. At the end of my conversation with Joanna and Angie, they each shared some powerful advice on how to design for inclusivity. If you were giving advice to the design community about the first step that they could make in their commitment to creating more inclusive design, what would that one step be? First step. Finding purpose. We're not designing a chair. We're not designing a new speaker. The world doesn't need a new speaker. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just doesn't. But finding the, the innate purpose underlying what is it that you are here to do? Because when you understand that purpose, then you will always be creating and daring to try to meet that purpose, to create a new day for somebody, to create a new system of engagement, of civic engagement or public service for someone or someone that looks just like you. So for me, it is understanding that when you put purpose in someone's hands, that they'll live to that purpose in unique and different ways, and it will manifest itself in greater and greater invention and the dare to be and design a better tomorrow, not just for themselves, but for everyone. Angie, last word is with you. I love that. I think somewhat related to finding your purpose is advice that I wish somebody had given to me is prepare to not succeed quickly. And appreciate the journey and the lessons that you're going to learn with all these failures and falling down. You will find your purpose. It took me a little while. And uh, I think it's still evolving. So this, this notion of always learning, I love. Because that is the, the most important thing that we can tell anyone to do. Because sadly, we do sort of cut ourselves off and feel like we've achieved some sort of pinnacle. And we've arrived and no longer accept new stories, or stop learning. Episode five, beauty is everywhere. Last February, our episode focused on the theme of beauty is everywhere. I spoke with contemporary artist Liz Collins and photographer Kelly Marshall to understand how they interpret beauty in the most unexpected ways and how their work enables others to recognize and appreciate the beauty that exists around them. To kick off my conversation with Liz, I asked how she defines beauty 
and how it is translated to her versatile work in painting, fiber arts, and installation. Liz, I'm going to start our interview today by welcoming you here, but also asking you the big, big question I asked Kelly at the top of the show. What is your definition of beauty? Hi, it's such an honor to be here. I'm such a fan. Thank you for having me. My definition of beauty is multifaceted. When I saw your, you know, the call, I just felt so inspired because I feel like I'm so committed to beauty as an idea. And sometimes beauty has a stigma in the art world. You know, it's kind of traditionally been something through time that's been kind of looked down upon in certain contexts. So I guess my definition of beauty right here off the cuff would be an experience of the sublime that connects to your soul and has some kind of sensual power. (laughs) Beauty can be as simple as seeing a shadow fall across the sidewalk or hearing something beautiful, you know, hearing something that creates pleasure and inspiration and nostalgia in a person. There's so many different ways that beauty can be defined. I found a quick definition of someone else, if I could share it. Oh, please. I mean, there's so many writers who've written about beauty. So I was kind of doing some research and got a little overwhelmed. But there was one by a writer named Michael Ventura that said, One's soul and one's world are connected in an engagement of wonder. The experience of beauty is always one of expansion, of opening, of inclusion, a moment of connection, often mysterious, that extends the possibilities of all connection. I think that's that's some of it for me. I mean, Kelly mentioned something about human connection, and I really, I, I can relate to that. But also, in the realm of the senses, beauty is huge for me and as a definition. I love the idea of wonder being in there, sort of that way for beauty to spark curiosity. How do you translate your own personal perception of beauty into the work that you do, which is both beautiful and provocative? Oh, thank you. Like you read in my bio, you know, a lot of my work is just coming through me as a depiction of my life experience in kind of abstract terms through materials, color, pattern, shape, form. So I think because life is so many things and the visceral experience of being alive for me is so often intertwined with awe and wonder that the work that I make whether it's sometimes a response to something I've taken in that's beautiful to me or inspires wonder and awe in me, or it's a feeling, an emotion, or kind of the two combined, plus this whole other dimension of like responding to the things that are available to me to transform, you know, taking raw materials and turning them into something much more complicated and rich. It might sound kind of hokey, but I'm deeply invested in the idea of alchemy and creating beauty, creating the sublime through the kind of alchemy of taking some base materials and through a series of steps and manipulations and maneuvers, turning it into something that is this new version of awe and wonder. 
During my discussion with Kelly, she explained how she captures and showcases inherent belief systems through photography. You've stated that our inherent belief systems, the way that we construct our lives, our physical homes, our everyday realities are things that you really are committed to exploring in your work. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about doing that? I just started off thinking like, who are these people? How do they get here? What are they doing? Like, I always love a backstory. Like, that's for me the, the basis of all of this the work you do. And me I think too. that, yeah, yeah. It's, it's complicated, I guess. I, I love to show a mirror. So whether it's something commercial or the people, it's just about like, how can I hold space for this thing or opportunity or environment or ex- occurrence and allow it to be what it's going to be, but also, you know, have a reflection process. So we tap into that emotional response so people, viewers can, can tap into it, enjoy it, but also see it for what it is. I think that artists historically have been the ambassadors to truth or the future. We, you know, in, the, in its purest form, we get to state the obvious, right, with that untethered. And I think it's a great honor to be able to practice that. Episode six, Living Well. In March, I met designers Winka Doubledam and Elliot March to explore how the environments we shape directly impact the well-being of ourselves and our communities and how we can build a future that nurtures wellness, serenity, and health for all. Our first guest was Winka Doubledam, a seasoned academic and design leader and founder of Architectonics, a research-based design practice that works on multiple scales. In our discussion on healthy design practices, Winka described the problem known as the sick building syndrome. You speak about a highly optimized design approach to elevate our everyday lives, and I'm really interested in that. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that is? Yeah, I think what we often don't realize is there is something called the sick building syndrome that is sadly not completely gone, but it is a compilation of the wrong carpet, the wrong lighting, no natural ventilation, static pressure because of air conditioning, polluted ducts from air conditioning. I mean, it's a, it's a sad list. I did that research actually very early on for while I was doing, I was still an intern for one of my bosses and got in, quite in shock to realize that we are all sitting in these kind of buildings and that that's what we do every day, right? And that's how we breathe and that's how we live. So very early on, I got very interested in building different ways and to really change the living environment for us humans, because a building actually in a way should be operating like we do. It should ventilate, it should sleep, sleep, (laughs) yeah, lights. You know, this is the other thing that's so beautiful. You go in Europe at night, everything is dark. 10 o'clock, offices go out, everything goes out. Here, everything's on all the time. It's so crazy and there's no one in the building, right? Especially, you know, the last year. But yeah, it should, a building should operate like a human body. And if it does, then it also means it works well with your human body. And so we like to study that and see how we can make it as much as possible a natural organism. Elliot March is the founder of March and White Design, a global design firm of forward-thinking experts creating interiors for how we live, move, work, and play today. Here's a bit from Elliot on how his surfing hobby has inspired his approach to design thinking 
and creative processes. I was so intrigued by the notion of surfing impacting your practice. And when did you discover your passion for surfing and adventure? And how, did, how has it influenced your decision-making process? I got into surfing when I moved from New York to, to L.A., um, yeah, we have the, the practice in New York as well. And that was really where I could connect, you know, with nature um, really firsthand. And, and living in cities all my life, um, it wasn't really available to me um, on kind of demand. And I, I really got into it here. And I guess, you know, whether it's surfing or whether it's something else, whether it's meditation, whether it's hiking, whether it's, you know, everyone has their own connection to to, to nature and the outdoors. And for me, it was surfing and it was just a great, I found it a great environment where I could be completely tuned in to, you know, to nature and away from the noise of what was going on in, in the day, in my daily life and creative life. And that's really where, you know, great ideas, you know, I found a spawned within that kind of disconnected environment that I think we all try and yeah, well, certainly we try and bring back to the projects and the the urbanity that we live in and design for as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's always a balance to play with. Episode seven, Nurturing Nature. In episode seven, I spoke with two New Yorkers at the forefront of sustainable design, Laurence Carr and Michael Hirshhorn, to explore how designers can use their skills and expertise to reduce our carbon footprint and ecological impact on the world. Laurence Carr, a practitioner of sustainable design who artfully weaves well-being principles and ancient techniques together with contemporary design, joined us to expertly discuss the importance of circularity and sustainability in design. For our listeners out there that might not be familiar with the term circularity, um, Laurence, do you want to help educate our listeners? What does circularity mean in relation to sustainability and design? I think there are several dimensions along uh, which we can make progress. Circularity is a non-linear economy. We are currently in an economy that is all about make, take, and waste. Uh, circularity is about um, reusing upcycling, transforming, and really aiming for zero waste. And in that sense, uh, circularity is part of uh, sustainability, but it's sort of the next frontier. It's about thinking beyond uh, existing project products. And as Michael was mentioning, it's about thinking about the life cycle assessment of an entire product, about where does it come from? How was it sourced? How is it made? Uh, what does this product uh, go through to be made in a manufacturing uh, space, as well as how is it transported and what is the end use of that product? Is it going to be reused or is it going to just you know, be part of toxic waste? So um, a way to really explain circularity uh, in the furnishing industry, particularly, and the interior design industry is really about understanding that the more we use either existing antiques, you know, we used to use that word a lot, right now we use vintage. These are beautiful products to use um, and reuse and, and, and upcycle and transform, you know. We have sofas, uh, headboards or, or different 
uh, existing chairs, you know, how can we reuse them instead of just, you know, trying to get the next new thing? Um, also, as Michael's, you know, business provides and highlights is that how can we sort of return some of our products to some manufacturers and then maybe ask them to help us extend its life and, and transform it to make it functional and usable. Our second guest was Michael J. Hirschhorn, the founder and CEO of Mebel Transforming Furniture, a social enterprise dedicated to expanding the marketplace for beautiful, high-quality furniture reimagined from old wood and metal. During our conversation, Michael shared how he became passionate about sourcing furniture that accelerates the transition to a more environmentally and economically sustainable world. Michael, can you talk a little bit about the importance of working with raw materials from nature and how that impacts the aesthetic of the work produced by designers with circularity at the forefront of their practice? Our focus is on reclamation of old materials. A key part of what we're trying to do is harness business strategies for the success towards sustainability. What what makes this an effective, forward-looking business proposition? Not a, quote, externality, but something that's sustainable and profitable. For some, we believe there's a far bigger market than at present for furniture that highlights the aesthetics of reuse, uh, the quirks the imperfect fit, the rust and oxidation from where the nails used to be. And for others, that's not their cup of tea. And we're trying to work with others to introduce, to further the idea that mainstream furniture, quote, regular furniture, high-end, high-quality, enduring, can be made from the reuse of materials as effectively as virgin trees, creating plastic or metal, new metal. Now, when you say old materials, how old? Oh, well, sometimes you're talking about uh, a barn built in 1700s. Sometimes you're talking about old original forest wood, which comes from 500 years ago. Sometimes you're talking about a skateboard built eight years ago that's busted and is, instead of heaped off to the landfill is turned into really colorful, imaginative furniture. And Debbie, a a key aesthetic for us, a key question is always, does the new use transcend the old usage? Like we're less interested in a table made from a busted skateboard that looks like a busted skateboard on legs. What we want is furniture where an artist applies their imagination to transform it into something that's true to its roots, but defines its own aesthetic and is gorgeous on its own. That buyers would be interested in it, even if they come in with no stated interest in making an environmentally sustainable purchase, just because it's interesting, beautiful, cool, functional, high quality. Yeah, and it's nice to have a little bit of a backstory, an origin story to the piece that you own. Episode eight, Design for All. This May, I spoke with the three recipients of NYC by Design's inaugural Breakout Grant, conceived to promote entrepreneurship and innovation among New York City's community. The recipient of the Breakout Grant, Matt Tyson of Modos Furniture, described what inspired him to develop his sustainable modular furniture brand. 
Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the design journey that led you to establish Moto's Furniture in the first place? It kind of started with identifying that there's so much trash in the world. And I just and I'm and then watching my family and friends move. Let's just uh, in particular focusing on furniture. So watching them buy trying to source and buy furniture for the homes once after they had just moved and watching all of the furniture from the previous home or apartment on the curb or trying to get rid of it somehow. And there's all these these just horrible pain points where things no longer were designed or made to last like an heirloom, you know, like an heirloom piece of furniture that that's in the family and it keeps moving on from new user to new user instead. But we've found our, I I've saw that furniture is becoming uh, a disposable commodity. So you use it one time, you know, it's not, it's not durable. It doesn't fit your home. You can't take it apart. It's not easy to put together. And so what we did was we, we saw these pain points and then we started to, started to look very deep into those pain points. So just first looking at furniture, we looked at the life cycle of the furniture. Where do those materials come from? How do we get them? You know, how are they processed, manufactured? What happens to the product during the use phase? So in some cases, the use phase is the most ecologically harmful phase of, of, of a product. So I, I guess like the best example I could think of to frame this would be, if you think about, let's just say a, a toothbrush. So you could say, hey, what's the most harmful thing about a toothbrush? It's like, oh, some people say, oh, it's the plastic. Other people would say, oh, you have to buy toothpaste. And it's the toothpaste rolls that are, that are harmful because you, you end up putting them in the landfill. And actually, the, the most impactful part of a toothbrush is the use phase. So the use phase is that lots of people keep their water running when they brush their teeth. And the same thing with the razor. So... When you start to identify these pain points, you start to see that some are bigger than others and some are more impactful than others. And so the way that we worked is that we collected all of the opportunities or pain points for the environment, for the end user, for the manufacturer, and started to create a really strict design criteria around each of those people or, or, or companies or materials or the environment or society. And so we just started this filtering out ideas and products and, and solutions until we distilled down to what you guys now see as motos. Although it looks extremely simple, but it was an extremely complicated process to, to get it to that simplicity. Thanks for joining us today and exploring some of our favorite moments on season one of The Mic. Visit nycbydesign.org to listen to each of these conversations in full and find inspiration from our city's vibrant and diverse community. Let's talk design again on season two of The Mic, coming this July.